I want to make sure my investors get cashed out as quickly as possible because the sooner that they get cashed out, now all the chips are off the table, right? Now it's just house money in play. We can hold on to it for as long as we want. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, you know it, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors and they partner with me on my deals. So this month I'm giving away a thought leadership tracker which will help you establish yourself as a thought leader in the multifamily space. This Excel will help you organize all the different activities and tasks you need to perform and help you track everything. It will give you many ideas on how to establish yourself as a thought leader and help you stay on top of your game. So this month, I'm giving away the Thought Leadership Planning Guide and Tracker. This document is going to help you establish yourself as a thought leader in the multifamily space so you can raise capital for your deals. You can monitor and hold yourself accountable and build out your own thought leadership platform. You can find the document at www.elliperlman.com under the menu option. You need to go to free resources and you'll see the guide right there. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to rate us and don't forget to like and follow along with me on social media as well. All right, so my guest today is Team Bratz. Tim is the CEO and founder of Legacy Wealth Holdings, a real estate investment company that acquires and transforms distressed apartment buildings into high-yield assets for their own portfolio. Tim has built a passive business and created a residual income that allows him to live the lifestyle of his choice. He's here to educate and empower others to become financially free through commercial real estate. Welcome to the show, Tim. I'm really excited and happy to have you here today. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Ellie, and I appreciate all the value that you put out there. So keep rocking and rolling. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. So we're going to talk today about distressed properties, which is something that is very interesting. And I think for those who don't have experience in that, you know, segment can be a little bit scary because they're distressed. But before we get into all the fun stuff, can you tell me and the listeners a little bit more about your background and how you got started in real estate? Sure. Again, thanks for having me. And just real high level on my on me. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio originally. And when I was going through college, 03 to 2007, you know, the last market was going crazy and everybody's making money in real estate. And I was a money motivated kid and I wanted to get involved in real estate because of that. And my brother was living out in New York at the time. I decided to move out to New York City. And I thought that you got involved in real estate by becoming a real estate agent. And I went out, got a real estate license, and instead of becoming like a residential broker, I, I happened to fall upon this commercial real estate brokerage 
And I took a position with them and it took me about eight months to actually do a deal. And I didn't really do like the, the transactions. I was in Manhattan, right? So we're talking about tens of millions of dollars, $100 million buildings. I really handled mostly the, the leasing side of retail leases and commercial leases and office leases. And I got kind of the bottom of the barrel type offerings or opportunities because I was a new kid, right? Never done a deal before. And they gave me this one 400 square foot listing in Greenwich Village of New York City. And it took me about eight months to close that transaction. It was 400 square feet. And we signed a lease with a restaurant to, to rent it, like a little falafel shop or something. And they rented it for $10,000 a month wow. with a 4% annual increase and a 12-year lease term. So 400 square feet, $10,000 a month. I'm looking at this building seeing another seven retail storefronts plus 15 stories of apartments above it. And I'm like, I'm on the wrong side of the coin. I need to be owning real estate, not brokering real estate. And so I quickly decided that I want to become an investor. And I think a lot of us get involved in real estate for that allure of passive income and residual income and that mailbox money. But then a lot of us, including myself, get trapped in that transactional hamster wheel of then trading our time for money and thinking we have to go and you know, flip houses or wholesale houses. And that's what I ended up doing. I ended up moving down to Charleston, South Carolina and went through that whole analysis paralysis phase, tried to learn everything I possibly could, and realized that I just wasn't going to learn how to swim by by reading about swimming in a book. I need to actually jump in the water to learn how to swim. And so I decided I need to go buy a property. And I found the cheapest house on the entire MLS. It's 2009 and bought a dumpy, really ugly duplex. And I just put some lipstick on the pig kind of a thing. And I did all the work to it myself. I bought it on my credit card actually, and just kind of got resourceful, right? The market was down. I'd never done a deal before. I'm a punk 23 year old kid at that time. And nobody's lending me money, so I had to go out and find the money, right? I think a lot of people say, I can't do something, and it shuts off their creative juices from right. figuring that out versus asking themselves, how can I do this? How can I make exactly. this happen? And then by asking yourself a question, it really gets your creative juices flowing and leads you to an answer, right? And so I thought, well, the only access to money I have is my credit card. Maybe I can get them to increase my limit, and then I was able to buy my credit card and back and forth. Bought that house, flipped it, and I made just shy of $14,000 in about 100 days. And I remember thinking it's the most money I've ever made at that time. And it's the worst housing market ever. And first deal I've ever done. And all these different things, people are saying, run from real estate. I'm like, no, this is amazing. And so, you know, you go ahead and do it again, do it again. Then eventually you meet people who have money, but maybe don't have the time or the knowledge or the bandwidth to take on different projects. And they said, hey, why don't I give you some cash? You do the work and we'll figure out a way to split it up and carve it up. And so... That led me to working with my first private money lenders, and I built up a small portfolio, just about 10, 10 units down in South Carolina, got involved in another company, ended up selling my property, ended up going broke in that other company. And I remember thinking, like, in, like crying on my bed, or um, it was August of 2012, thinking, like, I got to borrow money to make the minimum payment on my credit card. I'm paying for gas, literally with the coins and the cup holder of my car, and like I was intermittent fasting before it was cool to intermittent fast. I was out there, like I would not eat all morning. I'd go out and buy a foot long sub at Subway, eat half of it for lunch, eat half of it for dinner. Wow. And that was all I ate, right? I was like, just completely broken. I'm like, what the heck am I doing? And I, I decided, like I had things figured out when I was doing real estate. I was actually making money and I was building some wealth and, and that's what kind of saved me. So I sold my primary residence, moved back to Cleveland, Ohio, and met some guys with some money, and we just kind of partnered up. And I gave away a big chunk of my first several hundred units that I did, but I needed to get that 
reputation. I could build that resume. And it got to a point where, you know, I was able to build up a little bit of portfolio and that partnership ended up having to go south. It just kind of, as partners, some sort of partnerships kind of do, but we decided to liquidate that portfolio. And in August of 2015, I started building my current portfolio in the past four and a half years. I have a little over 3,700 units right now. I got another just shy of 500 under contract, mostly in secondary tertiary type cities in the Southeast, Midwest, and the South, like Texas, Oklahoma. And then A and B class areas, value add is typically what I buy, workforce type housing. And so my portfolio value is a little over, it's about $308 million today. But what I'm really proud of is that we only owe about $175 million on it. So that we have Very a lot nice. of equity that we've been mm-hmm. able to create because we buy value-add distressed properties. I think that's a good segment to talk about the asset part of you know our conversation. You're buying distressed apartment buildings. Can you walk me through the definition of a distressed property? Yeah, great question. I, you know, I come from the residential realm, right? I was flipping houses. And so there's kind of this formula that house flippers use that they have to be all in to a house for 65% of the after repair value. That means if a house is going to sell for $100,000, then you'd be able to buy it and renovate it for $65,000. And so I never went to a class on syndication. I never took a seminar, you know, went to a seminar, read a book on it or anything. I just kind of took my single family knowledge and I parlayed that into commercial real estate. I thought, you know, I'm not going to go buy a a million dollar building for a million dollars. That doesn't make any sense. I'm an investor. I got to create value, right? I don't want to speculate on it. And so for me, I always need to find those distressed assets and the way that you're able to create appreciation and create value is by finding things that are either physically distressed or managerially distressed. And so I take that same exact formula and I'm, I buy an apartment building, but instead of being, if I know it's going to be worth $10 million, I got to be all into it for six, $6.5 million. And my model is not to sell it. My model is then once it's stabilized, you can create a lot of appreciation in a very short period of time if you're buying distressed assets. So I've been able to get in there. I'm able to fully renovate these units. I'm able to attract better tenants, quality tenants, spin out the, the unqualified tenants and the people who aren't respectful of the other residents and people who aren't respectful of the property. And I'm able to add amenities and increase the income and decrease the expenses and do all those things to increase the NOI, which then increases the value of the building. And so I can do all that in six to 18 months, depending on the deal. So it allows me to then go in and instead of selling the property, I don't do that. I turn around and refinance it with, let's say a 70% LTV loan. So on a $10 million building, I'm all into it for six and a half million dollars. I'm able to go back in 18 months and get a $7 million loan on it, pay back my investors, pay off whatever the acquisition financing was. And then I have a long-term non-recourse fixed interest rate debt in place. And I can actually build wealth. I see a lot of syndicators right now. They're going out and buying buildings with and speculating that it's going to appreciate over time and hoping that the market will increase by 5% every year for the next five years. And then they're going to sell it and make a big windfall of cash. And to me, that's just a high paying job. I like the idea of creating appreciation refinancing and then holding the building long-term, that's how you really build long-term wealth. And when you're talking about distressed property, you mentioned that you're stabilizing the assets. When you're looking at a property to buy at a discount, does it mean that it, for the most part, it's not stabilized, meaning it's not 90% occupied for the past 90 days? And this is where your expertise comes in, where you basically push the occupancy and push the income as a result? Yes. 
Yes. And so I'll give you an example. I have a couple of buildings under contract right now that'll be closing in the next 45 days that are over 90%, but there's a lot of room to bump mm-hmm. the rents. And there's a lot of room to make some cosmetic improvements. And I'm looking at the, the comparables in the area and we're a couple hundred dollars below what everything else is for comparable units. If we made a, just a few improvements to amenities and some of those things. And so I'd love to buy that stuff. I could buy it at a discount, you know, right? But if you own an apartment building and it's 95% occupied, you're not a motivated seller, right? Why would you take a discount on that? You're not going right. to let it go for, for a reduced price point because it's already performing. So you kind of got to get into some of the heavier lifts or middle tier type lifts. And what I mean by that is it's usually physically distressed or managerially distressed. Most of the people that I buy apartment buildings from fall in one of two categories. One is kind of like mom and pop. I've owned it for 20, 30 years. I sucked all the cash out of it. Haven't reinvested anything back into it. And now I've painted myself into a corner. I'm not financeable and I got to sell it. It's my only option, right? So that's number one. Number two is smart entrepreneurs, people who make millions and millions of dollars in their traditional business. And they think that because they drive by apartment buildings, I can just go out and buy and operate an apartment building. It's another business. That's like Ellie, you and me going and grabbing, driving by a restaurant or eating at a restaurant and saying, oh, you know what? This is good food. Let's just open up a restaurant. You know, oh, yeah. Like I have to- no idea how to do it. No idea. It's, it's a new business, right? <laughs> that's right. And so, that's right. And so people think because our, our real estate specifically has gotten this, this allure of passive income, mm-hmm. they think they don't have to do anything. And the reality is I buy a lot of my buildings from really smart, multimillionaire entrepreneurs who made a boatload of money somewhere and they needed somewhere to park the cash. They mm-hmm. go and put it into this multifamily property. Yep. They don't have a joint venture partner. They don't have local boots on the ground. They didn't know what questions and how to interview the management company. They didn't know how to operate it. They end yep. up getting burned by the management company. And then all of a sudden, because they think they're getting robbed, they don't reinvest. And then all the tenants move out because they're upset. And then they have less cash flow. And then all of a sudden, the property goes in this downward spiral where they have to sell it. If they're taking their eye off their primary business now in order to try to keep this apartment building afloat. And they're about to lose both if they don't just let one of them go. And then they end up letting the apartment building go. And somebody like you or me swoops in and buys it because we know what to do and how to operate. Mm-hmm. So it's a big lesson. I know you said there's a lot of passive lenders or people who are, who are trying to get involved in real estate and, and buying apartment buildings who listen to this podcast. It's probably the biggest mistake that I see a lot of newbies make or a lot of passive investors make is thinking they can do it on their own. And then they yeah. just get their, their butt handed Big mistake. to them. Yeah, you think you can save, you know, 3 4% on the property management, you know, fee. You're going to leave so much money on the table because I, I buy properties from those, you know, people, those investors that thought that they could, you know, save money and they, they don't know what the market rate is. So they're leaving a lot of money on the table. Their operations, you know, expenses are off the charts. So the best thing you can do with your time is find the right people with the expertise that can actually improve your properties, increase income, decrease, you know, expenses. You're you're exactly right. And, you know, you talked about financing and, you know, refinancing. I want to talk, you know, move to the strategy part of our conversation and, you know, ask you about your you know, basically your strategy, you mentioned that you don't like to sell in a few years, you like, 
you're more of a long-term holder. And you also mentioned that you're refinancing after, you know, 18 months. Can you talk a little bit more about the strategy behind refinancing and, you know, why holding for a longer you know, period, you know, how long do you hold your properties? I think that would be very interesting to our listeners to understand. So my strategy is to build wealth, right? If the long-term goal is to build wealth, I'm not going to trade and resell properties. It's just not, it doesn't get me to my long-term goal. And I, I know that this is where my destination is. And I'm trying to figure out, reverse engineer the path in order to get there the fastest. And that's by owning assets and getting other people to pay for them. So that's why I buy apartment buildings. I provide enough value to the tenants where they're willing to pay every single month and it covers my operating expenses and it covers my debt service and it covers, you know, it puts some cash flow in our pocket every single month. I think that just the concept amazes me plus the tax advantages and everything, right? And so it is the best way to really build wealth. And so when I got involved in real estate, I didn't like the transactional side of things. So I just took the, it's essentially called the Burr method. It's buy, renovate, rent, refinance, repeat. You know, it's the Burr method of, of real estate, but I've just taken it to apartment buildings and commercial assets. And so it's very predictable how to value an apartment building. It's all based on whatever the net, net operating income is. So you take the income minus the expenses equals the NOI, and then whatever the multiple is or the cap rate in that area of what it would appraise for. And it's very predictable about what it's going to be worth before I ever even buy it. So then I can just back into the numbers and realize that, okay, if this thing's worth $10 million, I need to be able to be all in for six and a half million. The fixed cost is the renovation budget. So if I'm putting, you know, I don't know, $10,000 per unit in, it's 100 units, it's a million dollars. So that means my maximum allowable offer is five and a half million dollars, right? Let's say I have some holding costs or whatever, but so you can back into the numbers. So that's number one. If the property is stabilized, meaning over 90% occupied for 90 days, you can get an agency loan and go to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, CMBS, life insurance company, whoever, and they'll give you long-term debt from day one. And some of them will give you, have certain loan products that if it's stabilized, you can just add supplemental debt in 12 or 18 months and utilize that from the value add that you create to then pay back your investors. My big goal is to pay back my investors. I wanna make sure my investors get cashed out as quickly as possible because the sooner that they get cashed out, now all the chips are off the table, right? Now it's just house money in play. We can hold on to it for as long as we want. And are they okay with the fact that you're basically not selling in three, four, five years, that it's, it's a longer term you know, plan? Because a lot of investors, I, I don't know if a lot of them, but a big chunk of them, you know, many investors are actually, they feel more comfortable if they know that you're going to sell the property in about five years. Yeah. So I think where that stems from is them wanting to get their money back. Right. right. And so when I refinance, they get all their money back. So now it's just icing on top of the cake. So my model is, it's very different than traditional syndication. I just didn't come from, I don't, I didn't learn about traditional syndication until after I did a whole bunch of deals. And so traditional syndication, they invest, they get 70% of the deal, 70% of the cash flow, 70% of all that stuff. If the cash flows, they get paid. If it doesn't cash flow, they don't get paid. The operator takes a bunch of fees, acquisition fees, asset management fees, fundraising fees, capital events fees, whatever the fees are. And then in five years, they hope it appreciates. And what happens is then they, then they sell and then they get a pop and they make a great return, hopefully, on their money. Okay, that's, that's cool. To me, it's very speculative though, because to me, we could have 
three different presidents over the next five years. You know, interest rates just went down actually today yeah. and they're at historical lows. That's amazing. But what does that mean five years from now? Do you think interest rates are going to go up or go down? I think they're probably only going to go in one direction because they can't go down right. any further. So I see people still valuing apartment buildings at a 6% cap rate with interest rates at sub 4% level. And it's just not realistic. It's not like as interest rates go up, cap rates go up, which works inversely to valuations, which means values come down. And if values come down in five years and you don't pay down enough principal on your loan, how are you going to refinance or how are you going to sell it? Because you owe more than what it's worth, right? Or, or right at what it's worth. And so for me, I think there's definitely a play for traditional syndication depending on the, the, the asset and the, depending on the lender and when they need their money back or they don't need their money back. For me, I guess I've just kind of trained my investors that they're going to get their money back within 18 to 24 months. And so I'm able to create so much appreciation and be mm -hmm. at such a low basis where I'm able to refinance and pay them their money back. And I don't take any fees. I don't take acquisition fees or, or fund management. I don't take any fees that I get paid when the investor gets their money back. So I might have more equity in the deal because they're distressed deals. They're off market. They're direct to seller. We got to spend some right. money on advertising and it, and it's a heavy lift. It's a, it's a lot of work for me and whoever my joint venture partner is, who's overseeing the renovations. And so it's kind of flips it all on its head and we pay. So it's very predictable though, because the investor's money is only in for 18 months. So I know what my cost of debt service would be if I decide to pay them. So what I do is I give the investors, let's say an average of 25% ownership in my buildings while their money's invested, they make 10% preferred return, regardless of the property's performance. So they're getting paid and I'm not getting paid. They get their money back when the property stabilized and when we refinance. At that time, I'm not taking any money off the table. I don't get paid anything until we refinance. But at that time, there might be some refinance proceeds. A, a chunk of that comes to me, a chunk of it gets dispersed amongst the owners or the, the equity investors. The equity investors get all their money back and even after they get their money back, they get a percentage of the refi proceeds and then they keep their 25% in perpetuity. So mm. they'll get 25% of the, of the cash flows, 25% of depreciation, 25% of any future sales proceeds and equities that grow. And so the bigger piece that I found is investors want to know what they're going to make on their money. I've invested right. in many traditional syndications that were not performing or were expected to perform at a certain rate. And I, two years, I haven't seen a check yet. Right. And so that, you know, leaves a salty flavor in investors' mouths. So they want to know exactly what are they going to make on their money and they still want equity upside. If I'm going to help Ellie make millions and millions of dollars, shouldn't I get a little piece of that too? Yeah, I think that's fair. Course, right. Nobody's working for free. Yeah. Right. And so I think the model that, that I've kind of structured for these value add deals, it hits on both of those in a big way. So they make a good fixed return on their money and then they get all their money back. And now it's just icing on top of the cake. It's, it's essentially an infinite return because of the cash flows and depreciation and, and future equity that's, that's in the property. So it might seem on paper like it's less equity that they're getting, but the reality is I can get them in probably three, maybe even four deals in a five-year time frame. Mm -hmm. And they have 75% across three deals instead of 70% in one deal. And we're still holding all three of these assets long-term. And we're at a 65% cost basis on what the property's worth. So it's just different, right? I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I just think it works yeah, really well for value model. add. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, one of the challenges I think at least that we have is actually estimating what would be 
the refinancing terms. And that's why even though we are going to look into refinance, we're, we're not including that in our performa. So if we're able to refinance, it's going to be extra. Um, how do you deal with the uncertainty of the debt terms? Because if you're talking about 18 months, it's obviously easier to try and predict what's going to happen 18 months from now than five or six years down the road. But how do you deal with that uncertainty when you're underwriting your deals? And that's probably the most inherent risk to my deal. So if I can find a stabilized property and I can keep it and I can just put long-term debt in place, like, like these buildings that I'm buying in the next 45 days, 3.9% fixed interest rate, five years of interest only with a 10-year term thereafter. So it's 15-year term fixed rate at sub 4%. Like it's insane. It's free money. And so if I can get that, that's amazing because I can just put supplemental debt and my only real interest rate risk is on the supplemental debt in order to cash out my investors in the sure. future. So that's, that's easy. Now, if it's below 90% or 85% occupied, usually that's when you have to either go to a local community bank or you have to go to some sort of a debt fund and essentially get a little bit more of like a, almost like a hard money loan, depending on how distressed the property is. And so I combat that because I'm kind of bigger than the small investors and I can qualify for these distressed properties that a lot of other people cannot qualify for. And I'm also buying bigger assets, but because they're so distressed, the hedge funds and the REITs don't want them because they don't want to do any work, right? They just want to buy it and let it cash flow. So I'm kind of in this pocket where I find really, really, really good deals. And I'm at such a low cost basis on these properties that it gives me a lot of different options. So I still underwrite the project of, hey, I might be able to get three and a half or 4% interest rates today, but let's assume in 18 months when I refinance, I'm at 5% interest rate. I might be able to get a property appraised at a six and a quarter cap rate today, but I'm going to underwrite it as if it's a 7% cap rate in 18 months from now. And to your point, Ellie, it doesn't fluctuate the same as five years or, or seven years down the road. So it's a little bit more predictable. And I really stress the underwriting in, a, in many different ways. So it really have to like a lot of economic turmoil would have to happen in order for me to not be able to refinance and at least pay back my investors. And again, we're at such a low basis. Like I might get a 75% LTV loan today and I'll underwrite it at 70% or even 65% LTV loan, Just to be, knowing yeah. that credit might mm -hmm. tighten up, you know? And so I, I do a lot of stuff like that, but the reality is I'm at, I'm at 60, 65 cents on the dollar. And so the market would have to spin out in a big way. And if it does, there's a lot more people who are in way deeper water than me right? Mm -hmm. I'm still going to be able to have some options. I have a big enough balance sheet with enough stabilized properties with, where even if the bank stopped lending, they're still going to lend to somebody and I'll be one of those people because I have liquidity, I have a balance sheet, I have cash flowing and assets the mm -hmm. and, the, and, and so much equity built up. So I'm not that concerned. It is a real risk, but like, you know, perceived risk. But because again, of all the other ways that, that we underwrite this and the ways that we mitigate those risks, it's still a pretty safe play. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the process real quick. When you're purchasing a property, it's a distressed property, what are the first, let's say, three or four things that you do once you take over management and now you're ready to go and, you know, ready to start taking care of the property? Yeah, great question. So I would say that value add apartments is a little bit of a science and a little bit of an art. You need a little yeah. bit of both of those things. So when we go in, our rule is you fix the building first, you fix the tenants second. Why? Because you can't attract good tenants to an ugly building. It's got that whole curb appeal piece. So we go in, we fix all, I don't even have a conversation with the existing tenants until we've renovated 
all the amenities, all the exterior areas, all the mechanicals, all that stuff, put on new roofs, landscaping, all those different things, and renovated all the vacant units that were there when we purchased the property. Then I lease up all the vacant units and I get quality tenants into those, into those units. Once we're over that 85, 90, 95% occupancy rate, then I go back to the existing tenant base at, that's at these lower than market rate rents. They might be on month to months, or I don't even care if they are in a month to month or not. Even if they're in the middle of a lease, we still go and have a conversation with them. And we, it's, it's a simple conversation, but it's a little bit of an art. You have to frame it the right way. You have to say, hey, Ms. Jones, you see the, the improvements that we're making to the, to the property and to the community and the commitment that we're making to our tenants. And, you know, do you like what you see? Yeah, I love what I see. All right. Is there anything in your unit that maybe some deferred maintenance, some things that you'd want to see updated and, and improved in your unit as well? Because we'd love to make those improvements because you pay your rent on time and you're an amazing tenant. Oh yeah, I'd love to have a new bathroom. I'd love to have a new kitchen. I'd love to have, you know, new flooring, wh- whatever it is. Regardless of what they say, I say, Ms. Jones, thank you. Oh, absolutely. I totally can see that. And I'm willing to make that commitment to you. But what I got to ask though is, it's going to take us money and we have to, you know, this is a business and we have to be able to see a return on our investment. And so if I'm willing to make that commitment to you, will you make a commitment to me and come and sign a new annual lease closer to market rate rent? Does that seem like it would be a fair balance? Yeah, I guess that would be fair. Or, you know, and, and, and maybe it's $800 a month in rent and they're paying six fifty. Maybe I don't take them all the way to eight. Maybe I take them to, you know, seven fifty or seven seventy five and offer them a little bit of a discount or give them a gift card or something like that that kind of balances a little bit of that mm-hmm. stuff out. But it gets them to sign a new lease at, a, at an annual term. And it again, you take that across you know, $150. Here, let me get a calculator up. You take $150 in rent bumps, and it's a way that you can do it without having to wait for the leases to renew. Take $150 in rent bumps times 100 different units. That's $15,000 a month times 12 months is $180,000 a year in additional straight to the bottom line income. Mm-hmm. Yep. And at conservatively a 7% cap rate, which is pretty much every single market in the country, you're increasing the value of that building by two and a half million dollars. So you can see how you can bump this thing up pretty significantly if you can find off market, direct to seller, distressed properties, and you're not worried about getting your hands dirty. If you're willing to roll up your sleeves and get to work, you can significantly improve the value of these buildings in a very short, you know, condensed amount of time. Awesome. Thank you so much, you know, Tim, for, you know, sharing your knowledge with us. I think that was very insightful. We're kind of at the last part of our interview, which is the lightning round questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's rock and roll. All right. What's your favorite hobby? Favorite hobby is probably traveling. Where Where have you been recently? My brother lives in Spain and I like the United States too. I'm going to Puerto Rico next week. I go to Florida often. I have a house in, on the ocean in Charleston, South Carolina. I like, you know, going hiking and running and, and on trails and stuff out West. So I'm open to anything, but I love travel. I love seeing the world, seeing different cultures. Awesome. What book would you recommend to those wanting to learn more about real estate? So I have never read a book on real estate. <laughs> I, I guess I guess I've I guess I've read you know Rich Dad Poor Dad. That's like the extent mm-hmm. of any real estate book I've ever read. I've just kind of school of hard knocks, and you don't have to do that though. So where I have gotten a ton of value from other insights is I plug into masterminds. Mastermind events mm-hmm. have been absolutely integral in my growth and my growth trajectory and fast tracking what I've been able to accomplish. I 
highly believe in, in masterminds, even more so than just a traditional mentorship with a single individual. I like a mastermind because you got 20 or 30 people in the room yeah. that you can associate with or relate to in different dynamics. Maybe somebody's got an amazing relationship with a good business, right? And might take relationship advice from them. And somebody else has an amazing business and can grow and can raise private money. I could take, they could be a mentor in that aspect of my life. Somebody else is able to balance their health really, really well with their business. And I could take insights from them. So I like masterminds because it gives you more of a, a full circle and multiple mentors to work with. Interesting. What advice would you give someone who wants to scale their business? Get good at raising money, get good at finding deals doesn't matter what the economy looks like. If you're good at raising money and finding deals, you can do deals. Now, that doesn't mean you can keep deals. You got to have the third piece is operations. You got to have operations dialed in or a management company with their operations dialed in. So you can do deals if you're getting really good at raising money and really good at, at finding deals. And then the third one is in order to keep the deals, you got to have operations dialed in. All right. Well, Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much again for your time. If someone wants to reach out to you, where can they find you? Yeah, I appreciate you having me. I'm pretty active on social media. Come and connect with me on Facebook, facebook.com slash TLBrots. I'm also on Instagram at Tim Brots. And yeah, just reach out to me. And if there's anything that I can do, any, any insights I can offer, any advice I can give, I answer my own messages. So yeah, hopefully this is helpful. And again, Ellie, I appreciate you and all the value that you give. So thank you so much for having me on here and look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.